Hello and welcome to Poll Position, a podcast series from the Hoover Institution covering the 2016 election season and its aftermath. Poll Position is hosted by Hoover Research Fellow Bill Whalen, an expert in U.S. and California politics and elections. It's Wednesday, January the 18th, and welcome to Poll Position, a podcast by the Hoover Institution, our ongoing look at politics, public policy, and public opinion in the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Institution Research Fellow, and this morning I'm joined by Dr. Bruce Kane, a Stanford University political scientist and director of the Bill Lane Center on the American West here on the Stanford campus. Dr. Kane, I wish you a very belated happy 2017. Thank you very much. Now, when you walk into the classroom, is it like going into a Springsteen concert? Do they all go, Bruce? No, uh, but I will say interest in politics is peaking. Uh, mm-hmm. There are a lot more people that are interested slash concerned about what's going on. Uh, so uh, it's a good time to be a political scientist, I guess. I think it's a great time to be a political scientist. So we are sitting here in the Stanford University uh, bowels of the Hoover Institution, and it is a rather interesting time in California if you follow politics and public policy. Last week, uh, Governor Brown put out his budget proposal. Uh, those who follow California politics know the governor proposes in January. He does a May revise after he gets uh, tax revenue in April. And then he and the legislature sit down and negotiate over what the final plan will be. So that was last week in Sacramento. Next week in Sacramento, he'll give a state of the state address. And in between the two, two days from now on Friday, there'll be a little thing in Washington, D.C. called the inaugural. And let's start this off, Bruce, by talking about the position that California finds itself in two days before Donald Trump we assume becomes the 45th president of the United States. It's, you've followed California politics for some time and the relationship with the U.S. I, I have too, uh, but this is a different creature altogether, isn't it? Yes, more in degree than kind, uh, because in 2000, I think the state was in a similar position vis-a-vis George Bush. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is to say, kind of out of sync with uh, many of the policies, um, most notably, of course, with environmental policies, but also at the time there was stem cell research that was the kind of emphasis on uh, abortion and the religious agenda so california was very much out of sync uh, at that period of time and i think you can see that in what you were referring to which is the governor's agenda i think below the surface there is a tension within the party as to how to handle the upcoming budget. And I think it reveals a lot about what Governor Brown fears is the posture that Trump is going to take towards California. Mm -hmm. In theory, it's not about that. In theory, it's about revenue projections and whether or not we have a small deficit and what we ought to do to cope with that. But I actually think the underlying issue is that Governor Brown realizes that California may pay a price for its position on certain policies, everything from possibly immigration policy to trade policy to environmental policy. Mm -hmm. And so I think the governor has prudently said, and a governor who's been around a lot (laughs) knows quite a bit, has prudently said, look, you know what we really need to do? We've got a reserve. We've been doing the right thing to develop that reserve, but we also need to make sure that we don't um, commit ourselves to things and don't leave ourselves some sort of cushion because we don't know what the tax reform is going to do to California. It Mm -hmm. may be a good thing. It may be a bad thing. Uh, But we do know that almost certainly the governor uh, is going to have to clash with the president on immigration policy Mm -hmm. 
and uh, some of the city mayors, uh, some of which are very dependent on federal funding, are going to have to clash with the president on sanctuary policy. And we know the ACA is just a couple weeks away from being disclosed to us, but everything that we can see in the press suggests that the Medicaid expansion is going to be changed right. and into a block grant, and the likelihood that Californians could get stuck with the bill is very high. So I think the, that what California sees going forward is, hey, you know what? We're probably going to have to have a fight. And the question is, do we have a dumb fight or a smart fight, and do we pay a price for the principles that we as a state tend to stand for? Right, and why did Governor Brown and the legislature say, fine, go ahead and shortchange us, we'll pay for it ourselves? The budget that Governor Brown introduced has a $1.9 billion deficit inside of it. It's surprised by the most people who read stories about home sales and the and the stock market taking off. In a healthy economy, it would seem, in California, but that economy is not producing revenue, Bruce, in, in ways that Sacramento needs. Yeah, it's not just that, though, but it's also the fact that the type of uh, the, the nature of the exchanges between the federal government and the states and the cities is billions of dollars. Right. And, you know, uh, and, you know a, a third of the expenditure of the state government or more, and maybe it's 36 percent, some projections say, comes from federal transfer monies. And that's not even including all the, the various uh, contracts that go to California businesses. That doesn't include uh, the subsidies that people get from Obamacare. Mm -hmm. Then you're getting into even higher numbers. You're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars that's right. at stake. And that's why I say the fight has to be a fight smart, uh, a smart fight. It can't just be a dumb fight. Mm -hmm. You've got to pick and choose what you want. So a one point, I don't know, I think we've got the reserve up to, you know, what, under 10. But it's about eight. Yeah. yeah, about eight. I don't think $8 billion is going to do very much no. if you completely get into a war with the Trump administration and they start pulling back on all these different. Now, right. admittedly, there are some real constraints on how he can target any particular state or types of individuals. But that said, the, the, what's at stake is you know, a huge amount of money. Now, if Californians come back and say, hey, we're giving more money to them than they're giving to us. But that's not going to matter if you get into a street fight with uh, Donald Trump. That's a good question. That's, what, that's exactly what I wanted to ask you, Bruce. Does it make sense if you're a California lawmaker at this point to drop the gloves if this is hockey and start swinging at Donald Trump before he's actually put something into play? I can see the politics of this if I'm Gavin Newsom, let's say, running for office in 2018, or Antonio Villaraigosa, they're both running for governor, and you can see that primary on the Democratic side already becoming kind of who hates Donald Trump the most. So you can talk about the value in terms of appealing to your political base if you're a Democrat in California and saying, I dislike Donald Trump. This is a guy who got under 32% of the statewide vote last November, which is the worst by a candidate in a two-way race since I believe Alf Landon in 1936. He did historically poorly here. So mm -hmm. there is merit to doing that if you have political ambitions. But what if you're a lawmaker? What if you're a member of Congress from Los Angeles or the San Francisco area, and when there is a big fat infrastructure package coming down, a trillion dollars in spending, a Christmas tree of spending, you want to get some for your district. So does it make sense, Bruce, before Trump has taken office to be vehemently against him, to not go to the inaugural, but also call him illegitimate, to really find ways to get on a blacklist? Um. I wouldn't do it. Uh, I think, though, it varies with the particular representative. Uh, I think somebody, uh, John Lewis, somebody who really is deeply s steeped right. in civil rights, right. has, uh, I think, the moral credit 
to go forward and to object to Jeff Sessions and to object to what is likely to be a pretty harsh immigration policy. So I, I think it really varies with the representative. I think as a state or as a city and a county, it depends upon the vulnerability of that particular area. Um, you know, it, I think you do want to wait for the details. I, I personally would not have voted to give a contract to Mr. Holder. Uh, I don't see the value of that. I don't think he knows a lot about California's interests. You're referring to the state assembly uh, leadership voting right. to give a monthly stipend to Eric Holder and right. his law firm in Washington to help advise them on right twenty five thousand dollars as by opposed the way. to having a state attorney general who has an army of lawyers. Yeah, exactly. So I, I I wouldn't have done that. I think that was uh, unnecessary. Um, so, and but on the other hand, both the Democratic and Republic, Republican Party have the following problem. They have to weigh the base and the intensity of the base and the participation of the base because those are your troops. Those are the people that give you the money. Those are the people that show up through thick and thin versus having a broader appeal. And what's happened is we re now recognize that it's not just the Republican Party dealing with the Tea Party. The, uh, the Democratic primary showed very clearly that right. the Democratic base has come out too. So both parties have to negotiate this very fine line between the base and a broader appeal. And I think the wise thing is to wait and see exactly what Trump's immigration policy is because you cannot take Mr. Trump's words as seriously as some people do. Or literally, frankly, I disagree with the Atlantic article. I think you can't do either because Mr. Trump is a very skilled negotiator. And if you've gone to uh, an, a bazaar or a market somewhere in a third world country, you know what that's all about. Or if you go to buy a car before the days of CarMax and you went to a car dealer and you know that what a negotiation is, you realize that what they're offering initially isn't what they're coming back to. Right. And a smart strategy is to start way to the right or the left of where you want to finish. Mm -hmm. And that's basically, he does that by temperament. He does that also by strategy. And so I get back to the immigration issue. We don't know. It, sometimes it sounds like he's going to deport everybody, including uh, the Dapa Daka crowd. And sometimes it sounds like, no, all he's going to do is really a slightly more stringent version of what Obama did in the first administration. Right. And because Obama took his foot off the pedal on deportations in the second term, he opens up the opportunity for Trump to say, I'm tougher than Obama. Uh, if I get rid of three million people that have some sort of conviction that are, are immigrants, and if I put up the the wall, and if I'm really tough on, um, you know, profiling, then it may be that he's not going to take all these people and send them across the border. So if that's the case, it's not obvious to me that sanctuary city policy is, uh, in every instance, inconsistent with that. It's not obvious to me that California has to take a big stand on that. Obviously, some parts of the party will push for it. But it's not obvious to me that, especially looking at our poll, that, that uh, Governor Brown couldn't find some sort of compromise with uh, Trump on that. Because our poll right. indicates in, uh, pretty clearly that there's a division of opinion on some of these immigration issues and on the sanctuary issues. Uh, there's still partisan differences, but the reality is if you take the independents and some of the Democratic support, there's enough there for somebody to do some compromise. Right. The poll that Bruce is referring to is the Golden State Poll, which the Lane Center um, works on with the Hoover Institution, and we publish uh, every January. We've been doing it since 2014, and that poll is out today on Wednesday. You can find it at www.hoover.org if you want to read the details. And we asked our usual questions on California and 
concerns in their financial confidence. We asked their opinions about their governor and their government in Sacramento. And then we asked a series of questions about their attitudes toward Donald Trump and aspects of the Trump's agenda. We did not ask a flat approval question about Donald Trump because I think that's just a waste <laughs> of space. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Two word response, not Merry Christmas. Uh, we nuanced it in a different way, though. We asked, do you think he's going to succeed or fail? Because we were talking about this before the podcast. This man and has set the bar in some respects impossibly high for his party. So we wanted to gauge California's attitudes on just do they think he can succeed or not. And about a third of Californians think he will. And a near majority, mm -hmm. I think it's about 46% said they do not think he will succeed. But what I found about the poll was interesting, Bruce, was when you start going through the policy items one by one and you keep Trump's name out of it. But you just talk about immigration, you talk about the wall, you talk about sanctuary cities. On some matters, Californians are more divided. One, for example, that struck me as very interesting was sanctuary cities, where I believe 40% uh, of Californians want to continue the current policy, and I think 41% oppose the current policy. Yeah, of course, we need to say that there is no statewide policy on right, sanctuary. It's, city, it's, city it's a city, city policy, right. and about a dozen cities have uh, some sort of formal sanctuary uh, city status in California, right. but they're big ones. I right. mean, uh, San Francisco being notable. I don't think LA actually formally declares itself a sanctuary city, but they have policies that right. sure look a lot like a uh, sanctuary city mm -hmm. uh, policy, which means that basically they're not going to spend any money to enforce federal policy, and they're n prohibiting their police from uh, asking people about uh, immigrant status unless it's part of a crime or something. So, you know, I, I think that Garcetti, uh, because the city doesn't declare itself to be uh, a formal sanctuary city and because you're not dealing with Villaraigosa, you're dealing with Garcetti, I think there's room for compromise there. I'm told that Eric Garcetti has had three phone calls with Donald Trump since the election, huh? which, if true, strikes me as a very smart political move, yeah. knowing that cities like Los Angeles and San Francisco will be in the crosshairs if there is a pushback from Washington on sanctuary cities and against no talk about what funding to take away. Yeah. I mean, and, and in San Francisco, obviously, it'll depend upon who the next mayor is, but I don't think the, the current mayor is, uh, again, way out there on the liberal end of things. Right. Um, what happens in the next election, it's always hard, <laughs> hard to tell with uh, San Francisco, but they have a history of choosing the more, between the left and lefter, choosing the left rather than the lefter. So right. uh, I think quite possibly San Francisco may be okay too. But that's that's a more open question. And then you get smaller cities that... Uh, you know, right. don't have quite as much at stake as San Francisco and L.A. So we, uh, when we posed these questions, uh, we went at them in terms of saying, do you think these issues will be, these policy suggestions, will they be a positive or a negative for California? Not do you support the policy or not, but do you think it's going to be a, a plus or, or, or a minus? Uh, the two that stood out as Californians having issues with are, first of all, Obamacare repeal and replacement. I think only about a third of Californians thought that this is a good idea, will be a positive, and building the wall on the border. Also about a third thinking, only about a third thinking it's a good idea, or Californians opposing. But again, on the others, Bruce, uh, for example, tax reform, the very popular idea. I think a majority, about 55% of Californians overall, think it's a, think it'll be a benefit for California. Yeah, let's talk about that for a second, okay. Bill, because that's a, uh, right now we don't know what that tax reform is going to be. Right. Uh, for example, will it eliminate the deduction in federal taxes for state taxes? Mm -hmm. Okay, that could have a huge effect on California. Um, some people believe, well, hey, if you drop down the marginal rates, it'll all be a wash. We'll wait and see. 
But I think it could have a real effect on uh, the state's capacity to have a higher tax rate. But you're so. saying that's a you're saying that's a hammer to the patella. That's just kind of reflex, yeah. Yeah, it, it could okay. be. So you know, we'll just have to wait and see um, what that tax reform actually does to um, you know certain industries, to uh, Silicon Valley, et cetera. It's possible that it could be you know popular. Okay. But it, again, you know, I I think the wall issue. Immigration is not, I think, at the top of people's concerns in California. When we looked at the issues that were most important, it's jobs, mm-hmm. you know, it's the economy, it's, uh, you know, security, it's it's kind of the conventional things. I don't think, partly because as a result of the decrease of the flow from Mexico and uh, partly because the wall construction, the partial wall construction that we have on our border has pushed more of the immigration into Arizona and Texas and other states, we don't have the same problem that we had maybe a decade ago where there were, you know, uh, amateurs that were on the border and uh, looking over the border to make sure that people weren't running through the San Diego neighborhoods. I mean, we've gone past that phase. So I don't, while I think there may be some sympathy for the wall, I don't think it's a burning issue with Californians. So I don't see that particularly being problematic. Except, of course, with certain uh, constituents. I think it's something you look at, though, and it just symbolically stands out to you. A wall is just something the United States of America does. Do we build walls or not? So maybe maybe that's just a visceral reaction. Well, I, I think there will. Uh, there's no question in my mind it will stay unpopular. Right. But the question is, will it be at the top of the list of things that Californians have against Trump? And I don't think so, except in certain quarters. I think the ACA, mm-hmm. which you started with, now you're talking about an issue that could really affect a lot of Californians right. and will probably jump right to the top because you have two components of that. One is the affordability and uh, level of coverage uh, that people will have after these reforms. And the governor has said, look, you know, we used to have 17 percent of the people not on health care, and we reduced that number down to 7 percent. And... We've expanded Medicaid substantially, and if it's a block grant, what's in that block grant, and will it be enough money to pay for Medi-Cal that? Medi-Cal in California, Bruce, touches about, what, about 11 million people right now? I think that's the figure. I think that's that right, it, yeah. And that includes about, I think, 4 to 5 million people. It might be close to 12 million, but it's about 4.7 million, I think, who came on board yeah. courtesy of uh, ACA Obamacare. But now you're talking close to 12 million people in a state that is approaching 40 million people. This is a big chunk of the population that gets affected here. Yeah, um, and so I, I think that that not only has effects fiscally, but I think, um, you know, it affects county budgets because right. uh, a lot of these people now are going to go back to going to the county hospitals. So, mm-hmm. you know, and that was the first thing that Jerry Brown said when Trump started talking about ACA was, you know, it will be a cynical form of reform, he said, in essence, if all you're doing is pushing the costs down to the states and the, and the counties in the name of having a more affordable plan. And and by the way, it won't simply be Governor Brown that complains about that. The governor of Idaho was here at Stanford just uh, a couple months ago and said, you know what, I'm very proud of the exchange. He's a Republican. Is that Butch Otter? Yes. Love that name, Butch yep. Otter. Butch Otter, right. He's a real <laughs> Western Idaho. governor, you know. He looks the part, he talks the part. He said, look, you know, we put together our own exchange. Right. And we're very proud of that exchange. And if you're going to take the subsidies away and ruin that exchange, I'm not going to be happy. So his advice was go slowly, really think this through before you get rid of that. 
Kevin McCarthy, the House Majority Leader from Bakersfield, California, a district, by the way, that has a very large Medi-Cal population, so he has considerable skin in this game as well, as do, ironically, a lot of California House Republicans, the 10, 12 or so that represent California. They tend to come from districts in inland California, Central Valley, that have poverty, and they have a lot of, a lot of Medi-Cal recipients. McCarthy sent a letter to Jerry Brown, in effect, saying, we welcome your thoughts on this. If you've got ideas, send them. Uh, what do you think of that? Do you think do you think McCarthy was sincere here? Do you think that Jerry is going to play with them, or I think I think that there's a real divide in the Republican Party, and every Republican's going to have to think this through because this election there have always been working class Archie Bunker types in the Republican uh, coalition, but they were the tail; they weren't the dog. Now, with Trump, they're sort of the dog and the establishment's the tail. Now, we'll see whether that persists. It could be the dog becomes the dog again, that the establishment through Priebus and through Ryan asserts itself and Trump uh, goes off into the background. But right now, I'm not betting on that. Right now, I'm betting that he believes that he, Trump, believes that he won because of that working class component. And he believes that he's got to keep his promise with them. So if, in fact, McCarthy's district has lots of people that are either on the exchange or benefited from the Medicaid, and they're getting gutted with this, then it's going to put a lot of pressure on some of these Republicans that represent these rural areas Symbolically, if not even in terms of votes, even if these are not a lot of voters and a lot of them are maybe poor Latinos or uh, tribes or, uh, you know, white voters that don't vote, it still symbolically matters to the president. So I think that this kind of dialogue about what's going to happen in certain kinds of Republican seats is something we'll hear more about, not just in California, but around the country. So one of the questions we ask on this poll every January, Bruce, is we ask Californians if they feel that their state government is a role model for other states to emulate. And we asked this question in January of 2016, and uh, a majority or more respondents than not said, no, we do not think California is a role model for other states. I think about in the mid-30s said, yeah, we're a role model, but the mid-40s said, no, we're not. In 2017, though, the numbers have flipped. More Californians do not think that we're a role model. And most interesting in that, if you look at the Republican numbers, in 2016, only 8% of Republicans said, yes, California is a role model. This time around, 26% of Republicans bought into the role model idea. So hmm. what make you of that? Um, well, it's a little like Obama's numbers after all these many years being uh, below 50% are suddenly up to 60% today. I know you don't speak Republican, but... What has happened here in the last year to suddenly shift opinion? People think, hey, California, as California goes, so should the nation. Well, because I think political reasoning is often about comparisons. Mm -hmm. And uh, whether you're comparing candidates or you're comparing the status quo to what you're looking at. So I think some of this uh, reflects people's knowledge that, uh, you know, the health markets are working in California and not elsewhere. Mm -hmm. The unemployment rate is relatively low in California as compared to uh, parts of the Midwest and mm -hmm. some of the areas that were very angry. Right. Uh, I think it reflects the fact that the governor, uh, from a Republican point of view, 
is the the lesser of the poisons <laughs> that the Democratic Party will give. Right. Uh, obviously, for the lefter part of the Democratic Party, it's the opposite reasoning. But for I think for a lot of Republicans, he's particularly on economic issues been more centrist. He's built up the reserve that actually previous governors, including Republicans, were unable to do. He's been able to um, pursue a kind of sensible strategy on water and drought that didn't uh, sort of ideologically throw the farmers out and the farm workers out of the, you know, out of the bucket, so to speak. So uh, I think, again, it's all about comparison. It's comparison with the Congress, comparison with other states. And I think right now California is in pretty good shape. That could change with the economic conditions, as you and I, though, that's number one in people's concerns and considerations, and you change that factor, and the rosy view of California could change. I think uh, you've tapped into one important thing, which is Jerry Brown. Uh, Mm -hmm. Name the last time that Republicans in Sacramento, Republicans statewide, got into a big knockdown, drag them out fight, the kind of thing that gets on television, the kind of thing that gets in the newspapers, the kind of thing that actually would permeate into the public. I think the last time Republicans had a beef with the governor, it might have been Arnold Schwarzenegger, not Jerry Brown. So Mm -hmm. um, the Republicans have not had that kind of high-level fight with Schwarzenegger, and the Republican existence is kind of odd. With Brown, you mean? With Brown, yeah, Yeah. thank you. Uh, The Republican existence in Sacramento and statewide is odd to be polite about it right now, and that they don't have a role in the budget thanks to rewriting the rules and not not, not passing a budget by two-thirds but by a majority, so they're out of that. Um, The business community doesn't really fight the governor on ideas because why he is their last line of defense against the legislature. So you just don't see the public getting riled in ways. In other words, there are interests in Sacramento, the Republicans and business community who are not riling. Now, Governor Brown will give his speech on Tuesday, and he's going to talk about transportation. And he's going to talk about increasing the gasoline tax to pay for, I think, about $8 billion in new transportation programs. So this, to me, Bruce, is an interesting question about the current state of California politics. Now things are fought in Sacramento. Will the Republicans fight the gasoline tax? Will they try to line up with moderate pro-business, the, the mod squad, as they call them in Sacramento, the moderate Democrats? Will they try to fight the gasoline tax? Or will they just work with the governor and try to get some larger deal done or something like that? Will we see any kind of you know conflagration along those lines? Well, far be for me to be more expert about the Republicans than you, but if I had to bet, mm-hmm. I would say, yeah, they're going to fight it. Right. Because I think um, the one issue the Republican Party has been pretty consistent on is on taxes. Mm-hmm. And I think the one part of the two parts of Brown's agenda that uh, upset them the most perhaps would be uh, the climate change policies, right. of which transportation is a piece. Um, and uh, also his obsession with the tunnel and uh, and the train, although the train. <laughs> it, that divides both parties. Uh, right. So um, that one probably isn't just a Republican issue. But I certainly think the California Republican Party, if it stands for anything consistently, has been for lower taxes uh, and some concern about regula- the regulations. Mm-hmm. And so that will become a bigger issue because it seems like uh, a major part of the agenda uh, for Trump is regulatory relief. And what we saw in terms of the market reaction to Trump was partly about the tax reform, but I think it was also about the regulatory relief. And if you look at the appointments he's made uh, in regulatory agencies, uh, for example, the EPA, it's pretty clear that he's looking to get rid of a lot of the executive actions. He's in, uh, and in particular, some of the executive orders. He's looking to 
obviously the clean power plan is uh, DOA. Right. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think that uh, the, the, the Republican Party will probably fight. Uh, and I think there is a coalition. We've seen it already on the third part of SB 350, which mm-hmm. died right. uh, a year and a half ago, because the reality is those Priuses are not likely to show up in those disadvantaged neighborhoods. Um, right. They're more likely to actually be found in Republican neighborhoods than in, in these poor Democratic areas. And so people, unless they're savvy enough, and I think that you can't rule out the possibility that they will look more carefully at extending some of the transportation, green transportation solutions to vans and buses right. and uh, types of transportation that serve the disadvantaged population. And that probably is what they have to do to neutralize some of the, what you call the mod squad, which is mm-hmm. partly uh, ethnic communities, but right. partly, as you say, moderates that are worried about um, some of these policies. Now, Jerry Brown's State of the States are notoriously abbreviated. Uh-huh. Uh, I wrote State of the States for Pete Wilson, and we had a hard time keeping them under 40 minutes, <laughs> uh, which is a challenge because people tend to check out of uh, speeches after 30 minutes. I say that looking at our podcast at 28 minutes and 48 seconds. Stay awake, people. Uh, in a 12-minute speech, after you say hello and Happy New Year and things are well with the economy and we don't like Donald Trump, you're fast running out of time, especially if you talk about transportation. And there's one component of the speech, Bruce, which you're very interested in, which I want to get your opinion on, and that is the topic of water. I'm looking at my phone this morning. It's going to rain here in Northern California for about the next seven days. It rained last week. You were seeing stories about the drought in Northern California being over. Happy days are here again. If you're the governor of California, Bruce Kane, how do you approach this topic of water? Carefully. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Because we knew that it would eventually rain. Climate change doesn't mean the rain stops. It just means that uh, it becomes the cycles of drought in certain parts of the state uh, could become more exacerbated and uh, more extreme. And the warming means that we can't keep the snowpack up there, which is why we're dealing with as much flooding, at least on one of the previous storms. We'll see what happens this week. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, uh, the challenge for the governor is that he would like to have a legacy of shifting the state towards a better water system right. that uh, avoids some of the fights that we've got into in the last drought. Uh, and that requires storage capacity mm-hmm. because we can't count on cold weather keeping it in the refrigerator of the mountains uh, for the period of time that's done in the past. So we've got to figure out the storage capacity. And that, uh, unfortunately, has a partisan component to it because a lot of the environmental groups are opposed to dams and reservoirs that... Uh, destroy natural habitat and, uh, you know, scenery. So uh, the governor has taken a sort of middle-of-the-road position on that, and uh, he's he's been an all-of-the-above, the much the way Obama's been all-of-the-above on uh, on energy policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, if he were to deviate from that, but th- uh, that would be a problem. But I, I think the real problem is, and, and it's not just a Democrat-Republican problem, it's how do you get people to stay focused on the long-term problem of saving more water when water so is abundant? This is, this is the question. This yep. is what I want to get out of you. It rains like crazy, and people yep. see headlines about droughts being, about reservoirs being at capacity and spilling over in Northern California, and they think problem is over. And people are looking to Governor Brown next week to declare the drought being over. 
crisis averted, life goes back to normal. But there's a serious question here moving ahead about what do we do about our water policy because we know it's going to get dry again. We're going to face a situation sooner, if not later. And there's a lot of work still to be done in the state. So put this to, this way to you, Bruce. You're king for a day in Sacramento. Mm-hmm. King Kane. Uh, how so, about giving him a week? <laughs> <laughs> okay, a week. Okay, after you've exempted yourself from taxes, you can sit down and come up with a common sense water solution for California moving forward. Give me some components of that package and things which are going to balance both the concerns of ag, which obviously has issues with water capacity, with refilling aquifers, with, with you know, and then environmental restrictions, businesses, consumers. Try to give me try to give me a balanced approach to this. So a, a balanced approach takes into account the politics of the state. And I think that means that Jerry Brown is right, that whatever the concerns you may have about dams, you may have to sacrifice a few nature areas in order to get everybody on the same page that we have to conserve more water. Mm-hmm. So number one is more of an emphasis on water storage, which means more aquifer replenishment, uh, building a dam takes decades, so it's much easier to replenish uh, the aquifers, but uh, you can go forward for political reasons with uh, dams and reservoirs if you have to. Um, but secondly, there needs to be more sharing of resources, and that means that uh, the push to sort of have integrated water basin-oriented a sharing of resources uh, and, and control over the groundwater because the groundwater and surface water are interconnected. Uh, those efforts have to push forward. You've got to make sure that this GSA, the Groundwater Sustainability Agency's law, doesn't sort of die as a result of this. You've got to make sure that it keeps pushing forward. We have to monitor that groundwater depletion or right. a lot of Republican areas are going to sink further and further towards hell, <laughs> basically. Uh, you know, they've already sunk, uh, you know, 20 or 30 feet, and they'll sink more if right. you don't take care of that subsidence problem by replenishing and, and making sure that you monitor the groundwater. So I think that's important. Now, the third thing I would do will make probably uh, some Republicans very nervous, but I would tie the ability in many parts of the state to develop more um, commercial and residential property to the capacity to generate or or stay within a water budget in a given area. Mm. I would not allow... And this, I'm sure, will not uh, make some of your listeners happy, but I would not allow people to put golf courses in Southern California and artificial lakes and and the rest of Cal uh, in Southern California when the rest of the state is underwater rationing. Okay. So the good folks in Rancho Santa Fe will not like this. Barack Obama won't like this either. No, probably not. But I think you you've got to get into this notion that water right now we think it's a free unlimited resource and it's not and right so, so this this is really this is yeah. besides the policy the other challenge here is a behavioral one yep and how are you going to change californians out of their habit of taking lengthy showers and and going to car washes and watering their lawns ad nauseum and swimming pools and i'm giving kind of a cliche view of california life we like to use water Yeah. Well, you know, and there are a lot of policy problems related to that. I mean, one of the things we know is the Internet of Things Mm -hmm. makes it possible for us to keep track of how much water Bill Whalen uses when he takes a shower or when uh, he waters his flowers or whatever. 
And the question is exactly how intrusive (laughs) do we want the state to be? And that's not a Democratic versus Republican area. I think uh, all Americans want to balance privacy with uh, the public interest. And figuring out a way to do that, whether it's with traffic congestion or whether it's water, is not an easy balance. But we do have the capacity to do that and to monitor, but we have to be on the same page as to how we want to share that information and who gets access to that. And, uh, you know, one of the things we've learned is that um, the most hackable devices we have are often, the, you know, the, 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 sm- the sort of dumb devices that we have that are linked to the Internet that are in our house. So we, I think we have to be careful about how we do that. Uh, it's one thing to be able to provide feedback to Bill Whalen of right. what his water use is and maybe anonymously to share that information as part of the aggregate. But, you know, you don't want uh, the government to be able to, to, to know too much and to use it in, in coercive ways. So you have to be very careful about the public dissemination of that information and also what can be done with that information. It's a funny thing. A lot of people walk around in society with Fitbits and little devices which tell them every step they've done, every, how many steps mm-hmm. they've walked, how many calories they've burned and things like, but they don't like the government necessarily monitoring uh, similar well, results. or the neighbors, frankly. Right, exactly. <laughs> so the clock is winding down on Jerry Brown as the governor of California. Uh, he has only one more state of the state after this, and then mm-hmm. assuming he's not running for the Senate, which is assuming Dianne Feinstein's not running for re-election, which is a whole other conversation in itself, um, he's gone. So in terms of water policy, Bruce, and in terms of other agenda items, he wants the tunnels built on the waterfront. What else do you think he's going to do on water? Do you think water is going to be part of the legacy continuation for the next two years, or is he going to move on to, pardon the pun, greener pastures? You know, that's a very good question. I mean, the thing about his generation is that they've been hanging on for quite a while. You know, whether you're talking about Barbara Boxer or Dianne Feinstein. I mean, there were even rumors that there was some kind of swaparoo. Swap. (laughs) Yeah, that he would end up taking Daifi's seat. In, in In the state that Rivera's... Youth, unlike any other, if you look at California, yeah. I think the other 49 states combined don't pay what we do in terms of the pursuit of Yeah, no, we have gerontocracy in California. And yeah. we will have an 80-year-old governor in 2018 and an 85-year-old United States senator. Not that they cannot do their jobs, but it's not exactly the vigorous image you would think. But the Feinstein thing is interesting, Bruce, because if she does not run, if she decides to run for one more term, and who knows what she's going to do, she's not showing her card, she shouldn't, it's smart, but if she goes again, then there's a handful of Democrats who are now looking at higher office thinking, my gosh, when am I going to get a shot at this? Am I going to have to wait until, let's see, if we elect a new governor in 2018, the last time we kicked out a one-term governor was 1942, Colbert Holson. So you're talking about waiting until 2026 for that to happen unless the next California governor becomes president of the United States. Um, or the next, or Kamala Harris becomes president of the United States. You're waiting for a long time for one of those seats to open up. You could have the governor's race, Bruce, looking like a bunch of frat boys piling into a Volkswagen, all trying to run in this thing. So, um, but meanwhile, you do have Jerry Brown, and the clock is running out. And the question is, what does he do with the time remaining? Well, I think trying to predict Jerry Brown's behavior is about as foolish as trying to predict Donald Trump's behavior. Is my but I'll, let me okay. just say what I think he ought to do, and then uh, maybe he'll do it. I think there's some hope that he would uh, do what some of the most successful former presidents have done, which is to take up a cause and advocate it from the outside. Right. And uh, I think he's got the cause. He's had it for a long time of... Uh, 
environmental change and uh, making sure that we adjust to the green economy and get out of fossil fuels in some sensible, rational way as quickly as we can. And I think Jerry could easily find himself working with, you know, Berkeley, Stanford, others, and working on issues like that. And I think that would be a sensible use of his time. But again, would he, does he feel like he has another 10 years in politics? Uh, you never can rule that you out. You never can tell with him. So here are two right. things I'm looking for with him. Number one, going out the way he came in, which is proudly being the cheapest man in town and holding the line and spending as best as he can. Even though spending has gone up under the governor, he has mm -hmm. relished in the fact that he controls the legislature's appetite. So let's see if he can maintain that for the last two years, how he handles the idea of a budget where there may be less to deal with than he has in previous years. The second thing I'm looking at, Bruce, is his relationship with Washington, D.C., not just in terms of interacting with Donald Trump or the Trump administration, but just how much of a presence he wants to be in the nation's capital. Because one thing which is curious about Jerry, because he is that rare California governor who well, I guess his Potomac fever is in a previous installation of his governorship. Because he's not been in the mix for 2016, he's not talked about for 2020, he has not really been in the national spotlight the way that California governors can be if they so choose. He does meet the press occasionally. He does his Sunday talk shows. But correct me if I'm wrong, I don't remember him spending much time doing national press club speeches or going to D.C. and laying down a marker about as California goes, so goes the nation. So I'm curious, given that we started this conversation about the, the health of the Democratic Party, if Jerry Brown in 2017, 2018 goes to Washington more and talks more about the Democrats and about how he sees the party. Uh, he might. Yeah. I, again, uh, I think you correctly characterize a frustration among uh, that generation below the boomers right. uh, in terms of uh, politicians, democratic politicians that haven't been given their chance. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Vera Goza, Gavin, you know, Kamala, I don't know. There's uh, Kamala got her chance and is in right. the Senate, but I suspect that yeah, long, she has a higher it's a, it's ambition. A long, it's a long list of state constitutional yeah. officers and members of Congress, exactly. all of whom are chomping at the bit to do yeah, something, exactly. something higher. So I, I, I don't know whether he, I mean, he was able to clear out the field to run a second time, right. and he was able to clear Gavin out of the way, but I don't think he's going to be able to do that again. Um, right, just as Gavin and Kamala Harris came to a easy yeah. piece about who's running for governor, who's running for the Senate. Right, so I just don't think that's going to be doable. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, he, like Arnold, I think he's kind of more interested in this international issue, and so I suspect that he won't do that. But again, there's danger in predicting what Jerry Brown's going to do. Okay, <laughs> final question, I'll let you get out of here. Let's look forward to a year from now. Mm -hmm. And Donald Trump has not had 100 days or... 100 hours on the job, but he's had a year to get things done. Do you see any change in the relationship between Trump and California? Look, I mean, if he can deliver 4% GDP growth, if he can deliver a health care plan that gives the coverage that uh, ACA did, but somehow um, does it uh, more cheaply, mm -hmm. uh, if he can back off of some of the more extreme demands with respect to uh, immigration and, uh, and uh, the treatment of Muslims. Uh, he can go from uh, you know, the current situation to slightly better uh, view. He'll never be totally accepted because of his characterological flaws. Right. 
And as far as I can tell, this is not somebody who can reform himself at age 70. Uh, this is baked deeply into his personality. And the fights that he's picked have already cost him a lot in terms of not just support among Democrats, but among Republicans and independents as well. And I think it's compulsive behavior. I think it's deeply part of his personality that he can't take criticism very well. And I think he can't take disappointment very well. And if he doesn't hit the benchmarks on these promises he's made, I think he has a tendency to deflect the blame out to others, whether it's to the Democrats or the Republicans. And so I don't, at this moment in time, predict that relationships between California and Trump will get a lot better. Mm -hmm. The question is, again, does California sm fight smart and minimize the damage? California will pay a price for being the rebel republic, but it's got to be a smart fight. Okay. Dr. Bruce Kane, thanks for stopping by this morning. And our listeners, if they want to find out more about what you're doing at the Lane, Inst uh, the Lane Center, where do they find you? Uh, you know, just type in Bill Lane Center for the American West, and we have a web page that has all kinds of information about the activities we're doing. And you're on Twitter as well. No, nope. I am an old-fashioned guy. I don't do Twitter. That's probably <laughs> wise. You've been listening to a, a, the first 2017 edition of Pole Position, a podcast by the Hoover Institution. For more information about the Hoover Institution, you can find us uh, on the web at www.hoover.org. And we're on Twitter. And the Hoover Twitter handle is at Hoover INST. And I am, I guess, masochistically on Twitter myself. And my Twitter handle is at Hoover Whalen. Uh, for the Hoover Institution, this is uh, Bill Whalen. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more research by our fellows on the 2016 election and its aftermath, please visit hoover.org slash decision 2016. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.